Hello friends and welcome to this edition of the Sioux City Journal for Monday, February 20th, 2023. Reader today is Dave Sauerman and you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Our first story comes to us from Dolly Butts, South Sioux City to test license plate reading cameras. South Sioux City is planning to try out license plate reading cameras in the coming months. After receiving City Council approval for a pilot program, Police Chief Ed Mahon said 30 to 34 of Flock Safety's automated license plate reading cameras will be tested. He said most of the cameras will be placed within Sioux, or excuse me, South Sioux City limits, but he noted that Dakota County is looking at the camera system as well. It's a camera that will take very, very high resolution images of cars as they travel past and away from the camera, said Mahon. He hopes the pilot program will be up and running by April. They call them a license plate reading system, but the camera doesn't just read the plates. Mahon said South Sioux City learned about the cameras from the Kearney Police Department, he said. The North Platte and Council Bluffs Police Departments are considering the same camera system as well. It's been well received in cities that have used them, he said. Flock safety software can determine a vehicle's make, model, and color, according to Mahon. Besides reading a vehicle's plate, Mahon said, the software can also read other things on the vehicle, such as dents and bumper stickers, to try to fingerprint the vehicle. For example, if there's a large dent on one of the back fenders, it will image that and you can query that, said Mahon, who noted that there are quite a few cameras in the city, but none that can focus enough to capture those details. The camera system could help investigators solve a variety of crimes, including thefts, homicides, and shots fired, according to Mahon. We can query our system and say, was there any red Toyota Celicas in South Sioux City at a certain time? And it would give investigators a list of vehicles that might be that vehicle, he said. With that list, they could start working down. When the pilot program kicks off, uh, is dependent upon obtaining permits, according to Mahon. He said camera locations are currently being narrowed down. After the testing is complete, Mahon said the department will be able to determine the best cameras and which ones provide the most information for the money spent. Then that would be given to the council and they would decide how many cameras we are going to get, if we're going to get any at all, he said. Our next story comes to us from Mason Doctor. Mercy One's new urgent care clinic in Dakota Dunes opens on Monday. Mercy One on Monday is opening an urgent care clinic in Dakota Dunes. The 2,100 square foot clinic located in a strip mall at 330 Dakota Dunes Boulevard is staffed by two physicians, two nurses, and six support staff according to Mudasar Gahos, Mercy One Siouxland Executive Director of Rural Hospital and Clinic Operations. The clinic has an x-ray machine on-site and testing capabilities for contagious illnesses. We began planning for this location one year ago, Gohaus told the journal, because we saw a need in this community 
for a full-service urgent care clinic. The Dakota Dunes Urgent Care Clinic is Mercy One's second in the Sioux City metro area. The other one is along Singing Hills Boulevard in Sioux City near the Walmart. The new urgent care clinic was formerly occupied by Meridian Clinical Research, a firm that conducts clinical trials, before Meridian moved to a larger facility on Sunnybrook Drive about two years ago. It's also adjacent to Mercy One's Dakota Dunes Breast Care Center. Gohouse said the space has been completely remodeled. Everything is brand new, he said. Urgent care is, as the name implies, intended for patients who need to be seen for a non-life-threatening but still somewhat pressing medical condition, where waiting to be seen by an appointment would be undesirable, but emergency room care is not warranted. Some common conditions treated would be ear and eye infections, fever, minor cuts, broken bones or simple fractures, minor skin infections, severe sore throat, sprains and strains, Gohaus said. Our next story comes to us from Nancy Gardner and Julie Anderson, uh, comes from the Omaha World Herald. Climate change already impacting Nebraskans' health. Like so many eight-year-old kids, Easton Gray loved being outside, so it was no surprise that a summer day last year found him doing what he loved, swimming in the Elkhorn River. But within two weeks, Easton died of a waterborne infection, marking the first known case in Nebraska of the amoeba-related illness linked to warm rivers and lakes. Unusual warmth in Elkhorn River likely played a role in the child's death from amoeba. For 60-something Lena Broderson, it was her love of mushroom hunting and a close encounter with ticks that brought her brush with death. And for 50-something Sue Adkins, it was a single mosquito bite that left her so weak she could not lift a spoonful of Cheerios. While the illnesses these three Nebraskans suffered are rare and could happen regardless of climate change, scientists say the conditions conducive for them to occur are becoming more common as Nebraska warms. The result, they say, is that Nebraska, along with the rest of the world, is on the cusp of a riskier, less healthy future. Climate change is the single biggest health threat facing humanity, according to the World Health Organization. From flooding to drought to infectious, infectious diseases, the adverse health effects of climate change already are evident in Nebraska, according to Jesse Bell, a nationally recognized authority on climate change and health. He is a director of the University of Nebraska's Medical Center's Walter Climate and Health Program. As you projected forward, those changes will only get greater, he said. If we don't understand the potential impacts, it's going to make us less prepared for the future. And while all are vulnerable to health impacts associated with climate change, Bell said, some people are more at risk than others. Children, the elderly, low-income people, communities of color, and rural residents. We still have a lot of work to do in understanding the impacts of climate change on human health, especially in places like Nebraska, Bell said. A lot of times we're overlooked or potentially neglected when we're talking about the impacts of climate change, especially on human health in this part of the country.
risks already present in Nebraska underscore the state's vulnerability. Nebraska already is a hotspot for mosquito and tick-borne diseases, a crossroads for eastern and western plant species, which result in a greater potential for allergic reactions, one of the most flood-prone states in the nation, home to extreme and violent weather. The bottom line is that human-caused climate change is already happening and is expected to intensify, according to Bell and Daniel R. Brooks, an adjunct professor with the University of Nebraska, Lincoln's School of Biological Sciences. He is an international expert and an author on climate change and emerging infectious diseases. The danger is great, Brooks said, but we can do something about it if we want to. Here's what is known about climate change in Nebraska and some of the ways it affects human health. The rate of change is accelerating. Already, Nebraska's average temperature has risen to the point that it is on par with the 1930s, a decade marked by the Dust Bowl, according to the National Centers for Environmental Information. That's because of a 1.6 degree increase in average temperatures over the last 120 years, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the parent agency of the National Centers and National Weather Service. Most of Nebraska's warming has occurred in the winter and the spring and during the night, as opposed to during the day. That, plus increasing humidity and cloud cover, help explain why Nebraska has not seen the record summertime highs of the 1930s. But within the next 30 years, Nebraska is expected to warm more than it has in the last century plus, perhaps substantially more, said Martha Durr, Nebraska's state climatologist. Durr said it is possible Nebraska's average temperature could rise by five degrees or more by the year 2050. If that happens, the state's average temperature will be warmer than 2012, the state's hottest and driest year on record. In that year, Nebraska had its worst wildfires, dozens of communities restricted water use, and range conditions were so poor that ranchers sold off portions of their herds. A warmer planet is also a wetter one, and that's reflected, scientists say, in the increase in heavy downpours in Nebraska as well as elsewhere. The Iowa Flood Center, located at the University of Iowa, has examined historical records and concluded the last 50 to 70 years have seen an increase in flooding in this part of the country. All of these changes in climate, warmer weather, wetter weather, and drought affect public, public health. The planet is also changing at such a rapid pace that biological systems are getting jumbled as they move with it, said Brooks, who has written a book on the topic. Hosts, such as people, plants, and animals, are mixing with pathogens in new ways, creating the potential for an unknown number of mutations. A minefield of evolutionary accidents are waiting to happen, he said. It's an enormous problem. Nebraska is already a hotbed for vector-borne diseases based on its high rate of mosquito-borne West Nile disease and a number of emerging tick-borne diseases, according to Joseph Favior, an assistant professor of etymology, or excuse me, epidemiology at UNMC's College of Public Health. Here's what is known about those. In terms of mosquitoes, Warmer temperatures associated with climate change can accelerate mosquito development 
as well as the incubation of the virus that causes West Nile within the insects, according to the Environmental Protection Agency. More than 4,000 Nebraskans are known to have contracted West Nile disease since the virus arrived in 1999, giving the state the fourth highest cumulative tally of reported cases. Nebraska is surpassed only by states with larger populations, those being California, Colorado, and Texas. Researchers theorize that Nebraska's extreme swings in weather may explain why it ranks high for West Nile. Rainy weather followed by hot, dry stretches can generate the stagnant pools of water in which West Nile-carrying mosquitoes thrive. Among the Omaha-area residents who have been infected is Sue Atkins. Back in 2011, an itchy welt on her neck was initially an annoyance, but within three days she could not lift a spoon, and soon she was hospitalized. It took her a year to recover, but she still experiences lingering effects, she said. She can no longer tolerate being outdoors for long periods during hot weather. Uh, in terms of ticks, health officials are beginning to find more tick-borne diseases as tick populations expand, Favreau said. Black-legged ticks in Nebraska tested positive for the bacteria that causes Lyme's disease for the first time in 2021. Two Nebraska cases of Lyme's disease were reported that year. Both patients likely were exposed near each other in Thurston County in the northeastern corner of the state. While no Omaha area cases have been reported, the presence of the black-legged tick, known as a deer tick, has been confirmed in the metro area. Historically, Nebraska isn't, or excuse me, has not had a terribly high incidence of tick-borne diseases, but that's been steadily marching up over the last 20 years or so, Farver said. A tick native to the south, the Lone Star tick, has also moved into part of eastern Nebraska and much of Iowa. Not only can the Lone Star tick carry several diseases, its bite can also trigger an allergy to red meat. Lana Broderson of Fremont found out the hard way about the red meat allergy after being bitten by multiple ticks while mushroom hunting last May. In early June, she broke out in hives and then went into anaplectic shock, a severe allergic reaction that can be deadly if not treated quickly. The reason? Several hours earlier, she had eaten a hamburger. Roberto Cortinas of the University of Nebraska School of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences noted last summer that ticks are always moving into new areas. But when winters were harsher, they did not survive the colder months and didn't establish a presence. Other possible threats are an amoeba called Nagalaria fowleria. On the other hand, it is thought to occur naturally in Nebraska waters and is normally harmless, but when water temperatures reach the mid-80s, it transforms to an infectious state. That was the case in August when Easton went swimming in the Elkhorn. Due to drought, the river was running about 50% of normal, and when particularly hot weather hit, water temperatures climbed above 85 degrees. Young Easton's death was the second of its kind in the region last summer, a Missouri resident died of the infection in July after swimming in a lake in south-central Iowa. Scientists fear other insect-borne diseases could be headed to Nebraska. 
two types of Aedes mosquitoes that in warmer parts of the world carry dinge and Zika virus are found in the state. In Nebraska they do not carry those pathogens but that theoretically could change if those viruses migrate and infect local mosquitoes. And as armadillo move northward into Nebraska it could bring with it uh, Codgis disease, an infection carried by a parasite that favors the odd creature. Codgis is spelled C-H-A-G-A-S. Those are a few of the known threats. As Brooks says, there's a myriad of unknowable threats ahead as species commingle. Uh, drought is expected to become more frequent and intense as the state becomes hotter, and with it will come a raft of drought-associated public health threats, range fires, water shortages, dust storms, economic hardships, and increased mental health stresses. In the space of 10 years, Nebraska experienced both its hottest and driest year in record, 2012, and its fourth driest year, 2022, according to the National Centers for Environmental Information. Research by UNMC scientists and others have found an association between drought in Nebraska and an increase in death. Subsequent national research found a relationship between drought and suicide. Not surprisingly, the relationship became stronger as drought intensified. Drought is not similar to natural disasters where there, <clears throat> excuse me, where there is an immediate impact, said Azar Abadai, <clears throat> a climate epidemiologist who, as a research assistant professor at UNMC, participated in the study. The impacts are more hidden. Abadie is now with the University of Alabama at Birmingham. The drought years of 2012 and 2022 were Nebraska's worst fire years on record, with hundreds of thousands of acres burning. In 2022, four firefighters died fighting the wildfires in Nebraska, and dozens were injured, with many suffering smoke inhalation. Wildfire smoke, both locally and over long distances, can cause adverse impacts on respiratory and cardiovascular health, according to the Environmental Protection Agency. In the fall of 2020, as wildfires raged in the western United States, Nebraskans experienced a number of days with degraded air quality. Drought also jeopardizes the ability of utilities and industry to function, which can have spin-off side effects. During the 2012 drought, more than 80 Nebraska communities insulated or instituted water restrictions according to the Nebraska Department of Health and Human Services. An atlas of human suffering is how the head of the United Nations describes the consequences of the rapidly changing climate. That's because climate change amplifies conditions that destabilize lives such as floods, wildfires, drought, and the related impacts like economic hardship, hunger, and homelessness. With those challenges, psychiatrists say, come mental health struggles. Increasingly, concerns about mental health are being seen in rural Nebraska, where livelihoods depend upon the weather. In addition to extreme weather, Nebraska's ag producers are juggling the effects of inflation, supply chain delays, and storm damage to farm equipment. That's on top of typical family stress. Climate change add a lot of additional variability and unpredictability into a system that was already unpredictable 
said John Hansen, president of the Nebraska Farmers Union. Just in recent years, we've added the words bomb cyclone and derecho to our vocabulary. Atmospheric rivers and polar vortex. We're struggling to find words to describe the size and the enormity of the change. The number of Nebraskans seeking mental health help through the Rural Response Hotline more than tripled between 2019 and 2022, Hansen said. The Farmers Union is one of the founding sponsors of the hotline, the longest continuously serving rural crisis line in the United States. The 8,369 calls received last year were a record since the hotline launched in 1984. Some of the increase was due to greater visibility and a jump in funding, he said, but the calls wouldn't be coming in if the need wasn't there. That doesn't mean that people calling the hotline are trying their difficulties to, to climb, or excuse me. That does not mean that people calling the hotline are tying their difficulties to climate change. A substantial share of rural Nebraskans, especially those whose jobs are ag-related, say too much attention is being paid to climate change, according to a 2022 survey by University of Nebraska-Lincoln. In the Omaha metro, therapist Megan Smith says more of her clients in the last five years have begun talking about climate change. Distress, anxiety, despair, and sleepless nights are common manifestations, she said. Couples, she said, are having to work through disagreements over whether to have children, how to invest their money, and even whether to even remain in Omaha. While not everyone brings up climate change, she hears about it from all ages, from children to parents. When they look into the future, it's hard for them to imagine a future, she said. Since solving the climate crisis is beyond any individual's ability, Smith said, she focuses on helping people connect with each other to make tangible changes within their world. Emma Baker speaks wistfully of the summer of 2021. When she hung an American flag for the first time outside of her home, she and her husband had just purchased in central Omaha. I have this really cool video of our little house with a flag outside of it, she said. It seems like a lifetime ago and a different Emma Baker. A few months later, flash flooding in pockets of eastern Omaha left their home near 48th Avenue and Center Street uninhabitable. Like many others who lose homes to flooding, the couple didn't have flood insurance because they never imagined their home was at risk. And as with others, the flooding turned out to be just the beginning of their problems. Months of bureaucratic dead ends followed. Eventually, their bank collected on its first-time home buyer's mortgage insurance, but the couple was left in debt without a home. It changed the fiber of our family. It changed who we are as human beings, she said. I will literally never see anything in my world quite the same way. It shakes everything we once understood. Even patriotism feels different after we lost our home. The August storm that flooded the Baker home generated off-the-chart rainfall, more than five inches an hour, according to the National Weather Service. The two to three inches of rain that fell wasn't record-setting, but the intensity of the rain overwhelmed Omaha's sewer system. Scientists have long predicted that climate change would generate bigger storms because a warmer atmosphere can hold more moisture, allowing storms to wring out more moisture. The year 2019 will be remembered for a catastrophic March flood, but other flooding also occurred in Nebraska that year, one of a string of wet years.
of Nebraska's 93 counties, 84 qualified for federal disaster assistance in 2019. While many Nebraskans had flood insurance, an unknown number of others did not. The Nebraska Emergency Management Agency estimated that 7,000 homes were damaged by severe weather that year, and 1,000 received a flood insurance payout. The health effects from the March storm were significant. Some communities lost access to clean drinking water, and some sewage treatment plants ceased functioning. Healthcare facilities, including hospitals and long-term care facilities, were damaged, with some, the latter, eventually closing. In Fremont, the community and its hospital improvised to continue providing care after floodwaters cut the city off from the rest of the state. Rachel Lacudo, a preparedness expert and assistant professor at UNMC's College of Public Health said, weather events like the 2019 floods signal a need for healthcare facilities and public health officials to factor them into their planning. Those extreme events that are impacting people's health immediately and are impacting their access to healthcare, those are becoming more frequent and more intense. So we need to be doing more preparation for those kinds of events, she said. And here is the Woodbury County Court Report. Before Judge Jeffrey Neary, Heather Luann Griffin, age 39, Sioux City, possession with intent to deliver a controlled substance, drug tax stamp violation, sentenced February 16th to 10 years in prison. Corey Ray Groves, age 38, Sioux City, possession of a controlled substance, third offense, sentenced February 15th, five years prison suspended, three years probation. Nicholas Daniel Polinchek, 23, of Sioux City, possession with intent to deliver a controlled substance, two counts, trafficking in stolen weapons, two counts, carrying a dangerous weapon, sentenced February 15th, 15 years in prison suspended, five years probation, 20 days jail for dangerous weapon charge. And Thomas Edward Merchant, Jr., age 39, Sioux City, possession of a controlled substance, third offense, sentenced February 13th, five years prison suspended, two years probation. Uh, Jeannie K. Clayman, 38, of Harlan, Iowa, lottery theft, uh, lottery theft, forgery, identity theft, Sentence February 14th, five years in prison. Daniel Allen June, 37, of Sioux City, failure to register as a sexual offender, second offense. Sentence February 10th to five years in prison. Before Judge Todd Deck, Anna Lisa Camarena, age 53, Sioux City, possession of a controlled substance, third offense. Sentence February 9th, five years in prison suspended, two years probation. Waylon Dean Blackbird, age 32, Sioux City, domestic abuse assault, second offense. Sentence February 10th, two years in prison suspended, two years probation. Jacob Jean Flores, age 30, Sioux City, domestic abuse assault, second offense. Sentence February 10th, two years prison suspended two years probation, and before Judge James Dane, Michael Kaufman, age 22, Sioux City, 
Second degree criminal mischief, sentence February 3rd, five years prison suspended, two years probation. Our next story comes to us from Nick Kytrek. An 18-year-old pleads not guilty of having sex with a 13-year-old girl. This is Orange City. A Lamar's, Iowa teenager has pled not guilty of having sex with a 13-year-old girl. Skylar Myers, age 18, entered his written plea Friday in Sioux County District Court to two counts of second-degree sexual abuse, both Class B felonies. According to court documents, Myers had sex with the girl who by law is unable to consent in December at a Rock Valley, Iowa home. Myers was arrested January 24th and admitted to the sex acts, court documents said. Two other sexual encounters in other jurisdictions were reported, but a search of online court records found no other charges filed against Myers. Our next story comes to us from Earl Horlick. West students reflect on the importance of Black History Month and having big dreams. Known to his friends and family by the nickname The Duke, uh, Lamarian Mothershead is a star athlete on West High School's football and basketball teams. The 17-year-old is also experiencing a bad case of senioritis. Yes, I'm feeling the urge to move on, Mothershead admitted inside the school's media center. I am ready. Uh, Sanaya Hayes knows that Mother's Head is going through what Mother's Head is going through. The 18-year-old Hayes, a member of West's bowling team and a fan of TikTok videos, is getting anxious for the school year to end. Is she already counting down the days to graduation? It isn't that bad yet, Hayes said with a laugh. Hayes and Mother's Head also have another thing in common. Both understand the importance of February being Black History Month. Black History Month actually began as a National Negro History Week in 1926. Sponsors of the event choose the second week in February because it coincided with the birthdays of both Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. Gerald Ford was the first president to officially recognize Black History Month in 1976. Ford called upon the public to seize the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of black Americans in every area of endeavor throughout our history. If we don't remember black history, we'll forget about our past, said Hayes, who is the great-granddaughter of Richard Hayes, the longtime executive director of the Sioux City Human Rights Commission. Mothershead agreed, acknowledging that Black History Month must address the strife many had experienced while celebrating everything that they have accomplished. In fact, Mothershead credited his mother, Tamara Mothershead, for always being there for him. I was raised by a single parent, and my mom taught me to have a good work ethic and strive to be the best, he said. My mom also taught me the importance of a higher education. Next year, Mothershead will be attending Grandview University in Des Moines as a biology major with a desire to work in either sports medicine or as a physician assistant. Like Mother's Head, Hayes was raised by a single parent. Because of my mom, I know what it is to be a proud black woman, Hayes said. Hayes will be attending Wayne State College in Wayne, Nebraska as an early childhood education major. She's already gaining valuable experience since she's currently an intern at nearby Los Hills Elementary School. 
Even though she had experienced health issues associated with epilepsy throughout her school years, Hayes never let it get her down. If I saw classmates sitting alone looking sad, I would sit by them, she said. I wanted to be a role model and let them know that I was their friend. Mothershead also considers himself to be a role model to younger students. If I had to give advice to kids who will be coming to high school next year, I would tell them to find their passion and to dream big dreams, he said. Might take a lot of hard work, but it will all be worth it. You are listening to the Sioux City Journal on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Reader today is Dave Sarver, and it is time for us to turn to the obituaries. H. Richard Toso, 88 years of age, passed from this earth on Wednesday, February 15th at Good Samaritan Society, Canton. Services will begin at 1 p.m. on Saturday, February 25th at Canton Lutheran Church, Family will greet visitors one hour prior to the service. Arrangements are with Anderson Funeral Home in Canton. Richard was born October 23, 1934, near Erhard, Minnesota, to Conrad and Elizabeth Muchow Toso. He attended country school through fourth grade and completed his education at Fergus Falls, graduating in 1952. That December, he enlisted in the United States Navy serving his country during the Korean conflict as a radar man aboard the United States ship Hornet. He attended Pacific Lutheran University for three semesters while living with his sister Luella in Tillicum, Washington. Working his way back to the Midwest, he found himself at a rodeo in Vermilion, South Dakota, where he met Judith, Judy, and Remeter. After a long courtship, they were wed on April 2, 1966. Richard and Judy welcomed Jonathan in 1967 and David in 1974. Richard finished his teaching degree at Moorhead State University in Moorhead, Minnesota. He taught elementary school in Madison, Minnesota, and Sioux City. Later, he taught truck driving at Western Iowa Tech in Sioux City and finished his career as a correction officer for Woodbury County. Richard enjoyed spending time with his large extended family and would drive long distances to celebrate his many nieces and nephews. Moments spent with his grandchildren were relished and thoroughly enjoyed. He volunteered on numerous church boards while in Sioux City and then in his grandchildren's classrooms. In 2012, Richard was honored as the Volunteer of the Year for Good Samaritan Society in Canton. He will be fondly remembered for his devotion to Judy, adoration of his grandchildren, quiet demeanor, quick and often quirky wit, and many signature phrases. Richard is survived by his two sons, Jonathan and Mary Toso of Canton and David Toso of Canton, four grandchildren, Becca and Jake Toso, uh, Mahawald, Jacob, Matthew, and Elizabeth, uh, great-grandchild Leland, sister Lorraine Cantrude of Fergus Falls, Minnesota, sister-in-law Sally and Ben Colby of Dixon, South Dakota, and many nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his bride, Judy, parents, brothers, Kenneth, Eugene, Norman, Donald, and sisters, Mildred, Luella, and Dorothy. Our next story comes to us from Jared McNett, <clears throat> Sioux City's former Calvary Episcopal Church to see secularization service. What exactly does that mean? 
When Reverend Stacy Gerhardt stands in what used to be the sanctuary of the Calvary Episcopal Church on South Cleveland Street, waves of memories and emotions come crashing back. A priest at Calvary for nearly a decade, Gerhardt remembers moments of small joy, such as successfully hosting a pancake breakfast, and immense pain, like trying to shepherd her flock through a funeral service. She can recall how the initial plans for the 63-year-old building were for it to start at what's now the end of a parking lot. Iowa Bishop Walter C. Reitger consecrated the place in 1976 after the mortgage had been paid off. It's important to reflect on this building holds all these memories, all the major events in life, Gerhardt said. At 5 p.m. Thursday, Gerhardt will make at least one more memory of the former Calvary Episcopal when she leads a de-consecration or secularization service that will mark the official end of the church she pastored. The first such time she's overseen such an event. It's pretty rare to take place, she said. The process in the secularization, all of the sacramental items the altar, the bishop's chair, the pulpit, the lectern, the baptismal font, the crosses are all removed. And then in the Episcopal Church, we have a declaration written by the bishop that is read, Gerhardt said. And there's a service written within our liturgies around secularization of a building. It's actually a very short service. According to the Episcopal Church's website, Part of the statement acknowledges, for many, the building has been hallowed by cherished memories. The address is also meant to point out that a church is not a specific building, but rather its people, which is a sediment found in multiple Bible verses. At a July 2018 press conference, a cardinal with the Catholic Church, Gianfranco Ravisi, said the major reasons churches shudder are a lack of congregants, a lack of priests, or merging of parishes. <clears throat> when those places close, the relics have to go somewhere, too. A December 2020 article from the New York Times spotlighted a warehouse in Staten Island, New York City, that actually stores religious items from no longer active churches. With what once was Calvary, its congregation of about 20 or 25 people merged in January 2021 with St. Thomas Episcopal Church located at 1200 Douglas Street in Sioux City. As for the building itself, the marvelous thing was, after our final service, some people with Lutheran services in Iowa mentioned that they were looking for new office space because they were going to be helping resettle Afghan refugees and they wanted to bring together ministries of early childhood education and adoption, Gerhardt said. So, LSI's website prominently proclaims it is one of Iowa's largest nonprofit human service agencies. Along with the Sioux City location at once was Calvary, the organization has offices in Ames, Anamosa, Burlington, Cedar Rapids, Charles City, Clinton, Council Bluffs, Davenport, Denison, Des Moines, Dubuque, Manchester, Maquoketa, Marshalltown, Mason City, Muscatine, Spencer, Storm Lake, Waterloo, Wacon, and Waverly. In addition to the adoption, early childhood, and resettlement programs, 
LSI offers, that's Lutheran Social Services of Iowa, offers access to services such as therapy, job training, and language learning. Much of the look and the feel of Calvary has been retained since LSI took the keys. There's still a step up to what was the altar area. Visitors can easily spot an organ and a piano. A kind of coat rack remains bolted to the walls on the way in, and certain downstairs offices have kept the cozy feeling of a Sunday school classroom. In fact, if someone searched for long enough, they could find a button in the former sanctuary that buzzes down to the old classrooms. Touring the place again, Gerhard was delighted to press the buzzer. <laughs> Gerhard said she's also found joy in the fact that her former home was turned over to another religious group. That was our desire when we knew we would be leaving the building and we were not going to settle for anything that probably wasn't some kind of ministry, she said. There were other positives about making the transition, according to Gerhardt. We've certainly enjoyed having a larger congregation and expanding the core of the church, she said. We can do things together that we could not have done prior to this. As our current church community begins the season of Lent, which is in part about reflecting on the frailty of all things, Gerhardt cannot help but reflect once more on what Calvary was and is and what that means for her and her churchgoers. It reminds me of the temporal nature of human life, and for churches, there's a season for some and a time to say it's the end, she said. Our next story comes to us from Caitlin Yamada. Sioux City Schools librarians are vigilant in the books section. When it comes to knowing which books are age appropriate for schools, teacher librarians are the experts. School teacher librarians can tell a student which books to read based on their interests in their classwork and are at the forefront of deciding which library books are age appropriate. We're very vigilant when it comes to choosing books, said Sioux City Middle School librarian Kate Mickelson. As legislatures around the country and in Iowa discuss implementing stricter rules on what books kids are and are not allowed to read, Sioux City School librarians say district standards meet or exceed some of the proposed bill standards. On Monday, the Sioux City, Sioux City School Board conducted a final hearing on a series of library material board policies. The policies discuss what constitutes library materials, how those materials are selected, when materials are removed, and what happens when materials are challenged. Mickelson said these policies have been in practice in the district for years, but they felt it was time to put those policies in writing. North High School teacher librarian Chris Tomlinson said, because the legislature is discussing library materials, they felt it was important to have a separate library policy versus an instructional materials policy. After approaching Amy Denny, Director of Curriculum Instruction and Assessment, the policies were brought to the board. Now we can put them on the website so that everyone can look them up and see what our procedures and processes are, Mickelson said. While some may think librarians just buy books for students at random, based on New York Times bestsellers or popularity, Mickelson and Tomlinson state that it is a more thought out process. Mickelson and Tomlinson had their master's degrees in librarianship, as well as history in teaching English literature. We know what we're looking for, and we're very cautious in doing, what we be, in doing that because 
These are our kids, Mickelson said. We would never put anything in our libraries that we wouldn't feel comfortable with a student taking home. Mickelson said they are very careful about ensuring the books in each grade school are appropriate for that level. The district subscribes to various professional library journals that come out with recommendations each year. The librarians can then look up books they are interested in purchasing in the online catalog called Destiny. The catalog has an option for librarians to read professional reviews, learn recommended age ranges for book, and understand which types of readers the book is good for. Those are written by teachers, they're written by librarians, they're written by publishers, so we really can find everything we need from those reviews, Mickelson said. The district selection process requires each book to have a minimum of two quality reviews for the targeted age group. The district uses sources such as the Children's Catalog, Middle and Junior High School Library Catalog, Senior High School Library Catalog, and School Library Journal, and more. Even if the books have good reviews, Mickelson said she wants to know exactly what is in the book in case there's something that could trigger students with difficult experiences. When asked if they read many of the books they purchased, both Mickelson and Tomlinson said yes. I don't think I've read adult fiction. Let's see, I don't think I've read adult fiction in 10 years, Tomlinson said. If the librarians don't have time to read the books, there is a network of teachers and staff throughout the district who are willing to read the books and sticky note potential issues. When choosing books at the high school level, Tomlinson balances what topics the teachers are teaching and what students want to read and what are award winners. She then reads the reviews for the books and determines which are appropriate. I have a Venn diagram, she said. That's a V-E-N-N diagram. She then asks those, she then takes those books and looks at the North High Library. Is she short on mystery novels? Thrillers? If so, she buys more books for those categories. Just slapping together a book order does not happen, she said. It takes a month or two months. They also don't place one single book order. They want new books coming into the library throughout the year, Mickelson said. District policy states library materials should, first, be chosen for their strengths rather than rejected for their weaknesses. Second, be chosen to enrich and support the curriculum and the educational, emotional, personal, and recreational needs of the users. Third, be evaluated for standards of quality in literary, artistic, and aesthetic quality, technical aspects, and physical format. Fourth, be appropriate for the range of age, emotional development, ability level, learning styles, and social development of students. Fifth, represent differing viewpoints of controversial issues so the users may be motivated to engage in critical analysis of such issues, to explore their own beliefs, attitudes, and behavior, and to make intelligent judgments in their everyday lives. Sixth, provide a global perspective, promote diversity by including materials by authors and illustrators of all cultures. Seventh, incorporate current, accurate, and authentic factual content from authoritative sources as appropriate. And lastly, provide students with the opportunity to investigate, analyze, and evaluate social issues from multiple perspectives. One of the pillars of librarianship is ensuring everyone has access to educational material, Mickelson said. 
but sometimes the students need to be protected from reading inappropriate materials for their age. She said some of the middle school kids may think that they are ready for higher level books, but they're not. Mickelson said if a middle school student requests a book that is only available at the high school level, she looks at why. Is it for schoolwork? Is it at a higher level book that middle schoolers don't typically read? Or is it inflammatory? If she doesn't know, she'll ask Tomlinson or other high school librarians before requesting the book. Social media sites such as TikTok and Instagram are popular places for adults to share book recommendations, calling the sites Book Talk or Bookstagram, respectively. With the high number of kids and teens also using those social media sites, they can end up being recommended extremely inappropriate books. Colleen Hoover is a popular adult romance author who is frequently featured on these sites. Her adult fiction books have sexual scenes and triggering content that would not be considered appropriate for school libraries. She also has a few teen fiction books. Tomlinson and Mickelson have had students request books such as Hoover's. They both said they explained that the book is not appropriate for their age and instead recommend an age-appropriate romance novel. Once books are purchased and placed on the shelves, they don't always stay there. A topic that may have been appropriate a few years ago may not now be appropriate, and librarians are constantly reviewing their catalogs. We know more than we did the year before, Mickelson said. We always have standards for weeding out books that are really old. It is more important to have books that are current and relevant than having a large number of books, she said. Mickelson said, for example, they don't want a five-year-old book on the Middle East because the information will be inaccurate. She also said they pull books based on trends or issues. They have pulled older books on people who have since become problematic, such as Bill Cosby. We don't want to have kids getting the wrong information, getting old information, she said. It's really important for us to replace those books to find new books and find new stories. At the elementary school and middle school level, books might move up to middle school and high school if there are topics that may now be inappropriate or have a scene that is too much for the kids. Every year, Mickelson says she has books that she offers to the high schools that she is removing from the middle school. The teacher librarians also keep track of how often a book is being checked out and whether or not the students are whispering about it. That causes us to stop and say, okay, let's look at this book a little bit more closely. Is there a reason this book is being read so much? Denny said. She said, sometimes it's amazing literature that connects with kids, and sometimes it has scenes that are not appropriate for that age group. District policy allows librarians to remove items that are outdated, obsolete, racist, sexist, or culturally insensitive. If a parent or a guardian of a current student objects to library materials, they can speak with the teacher librarians and explain why they don't want their child reading those books. Tomlinson and Mickelson said they have not had any recent contact from parents concerned about the library materials. Mickelson said for the most part, students don't check out books their parents would not approve of. At the elementary level, Denny said there have been concerns from parents and there have been some books pulled. We're following our policy, she said. If parents or guardians want books removed from the library completely, the district has a policy in place to address those concerns. A committee called the Reconsideration Committee would read the material and then meet to discuss the material and the complaint. The committee would be comprised of the following. 
the Director of Curriculum, Instruction, and Assessment, the Director of Elementary or Secondary Education, depending on what level the challenged material is in, uh, one district level instruction director, one building administrator other than the building administrator who received the complaint, one teacher librarian, one parent or guardian of an enrolled student, and one student. At the open public meeting, the committee will listen to the complaint as well as the opinions of others, determine the appropriateness of the material, and whether to keep the material, remove the material, or limit its use. Nationally, groups of people and legislators are attempting to get a variety of books banned, both historically challenged books and books that discuss gender and sexuality. Tomlinson said at the high school level there needs to be books that kids can identify with and understand what they're feeling. Whether it's religious, race relations, mindfulness, making friends, domestic violence, or gender, Tomlinson and Nicholson said the library is a resource for students to seek understanding. For the kids that don't have answers, that don't know what they're doing, that don't know, this might be the only place they get that validation, Tomlinson said. She said kids don't have to read it, but for those who are searching for that information, a school library is a safe place where librarians know what content is in the book and that it is age appropriate, unlike if the students sought out information on the internet. Governor Reynolds has proposed a bill that if a book is removed by one school due to content, all other schools in the state should restrict it. It also states a book removed from one school library would be available for students at other schools with parent permission. Some Republicans in the state suggest there should be age restrictions on books similar to movie reading ratings. Certain ratings would require parental permission to be checked out under this proposal. Next, we have a story from New York City. Uh, a owl, he's actually an eagle owl, I think. Uh, his name is Flacco. He escaped from the New York City Zoo, and he, uh, well, here, I'll just read this story. Uh, for two weeks, an owl that escaped from New York Central Park Zoo has flown from treetop to treetop, eluding capture and amassing legions of fans worried about his ability to survive alone in the big city. Would Flacco, a majestic Eurasian eagle owl, go hungry because he had not developed an ability to hunt while in captivity? With a collective sigh of relief, the answer is as a resounding no. It appears Flacco regained his killer instinct as becoming an old hand at swooping down from his lofty perch to feed on Central Park's bounty of rats. As a result, zoo officials announced they were suspending recovery operations, at least for now, but we'll keep a close eye on the owl's health. We are going to continue monitoring Flacco and his activities and be prepared to resume recovery efforts if he shows any sign of difficulty or distress, according to the zoo officials. The bird's name in Spanish means skinny, and it seemed he was in danger of living up to his name in the early days of his escape because he had not been seen eating. But when he started coughing up fur and bones, it sparked excitement, proof that he had been hunting and eating. Officials acknowledged recovering Flacco had proven difficult, especially since he has been very successful at hunting and consuming the abundant prey in the park. The Eurasian eagle owl is one of the larger owl species 
with a wingspan of up to 79 inches, according to the Wildlife Conservation Society. They have large talons and distinctive ear tufts. Despite evidence that Flacco had been dining on rodents, the task of capturing him went on. Most recently, zoo officials tried to lure Flacco with bait and recordings of eagle owl calls. He showed some interest, but did not fall for the ruse. The search for Flacco was launched February 2, after vandals cut stainless steel meshing at the bird's enclosure. Flacco has made his rounds of Upper Manhattan, but has not strayed too far from the park. He flew to the nearby shopping hub of Fifth Avenue, where police officers failed to catch him. He was captivating audiences wherever he went, including a visit to the park's skating rink. Twitter has been a flutter with sightings, and hashtag free Flacco, as well as an online petition to keep him free, soon took flight. Flacco's been doing well in Central Park, and that's amazing. He's made a remarkable move from being a captive owl to being in the wild much faster than anyone would have expected, according to David Barrett, who runs the birding Twitter accounts at Manhattan Bird Alert, Brooklyn Bird Alert, and Bronx Bird Alert. He's catching prey on his own. He continues to fly better and better. He seems to be enjoying himself out there. Eurasian eagle owls are not native to North America, so Flacco would have to fly across the ocean to find his own kind in the wild. He was less than a year old when he was brought to the Central Park Zoo in 2010. Owls are mostly solitary animals and usually only interact with another animal during breeding season. He's going to be lonely out there, Barrett said. Uh, it's a good question as to how he will do. And that brings us to the conclusion of reading the Sioux City Journal for this Monday, February 20th, 2023. Your reader today has been Dave Sowerman. Thank you for listening to this IRIS program. Mm-hmm.